1: From the time he was young enough to pedal a bicycle, William Caleb Yarborough knew all too well the smell of tobacco and the feel of the South Carolina sun on his shoulders. He was a farm boy, raised in jeans, under starry skies, on pintos and cornbread, and church hymns, and there was nothing better. Sadly, his father, Julian Yarborough, died when Cale was only 10 years old in a single-engine airplane crash in 1949. And that meant young kale suddenly had to begin growing up fast to help to become the breadwinner for his two younger brothers and his mother annie and he was no stranger to hard work aside from rising early for school he would work until dark around the family farm making money selling crops they raised and climbing into those very hot tobacco barns to hang tobacco sticks for curing and it was really nasty work he helped run the family country store in cotton gin and in the late 1950s, he was a high school football star at Timmonsville High School and later played semi-pro football in Columbia, South Carolina for four seasons. He was even recruited by what was then the Washington Redskins, and he also was a Golden Gloves boxer. In 1957, at age 18 and too young to drive in NASCAR, he was thrown out of the Darlington Raceway twice by NASCAR official Johnny Bruner Sr., Yawborough made his debut as a driver at the Southern 500 that year, driving Bobby Weatherly's number 30 Pontiac for at least a few laps. That is until NASCAR threw him out for a third time. He ran for Weatherly two years later in 1959 and finished 27th in that Southern 500. In 1960, Yawborough ran one race and had his first career top 15, a 14th place finish at the Southern States Fairground in Charlotte. One race followed in 1961, finishing 30th in the Southern 500 that year. Then in 1962, Yarborough ran eight races for Bob Musick, Don Harrison, and some team owner named Wildcat Williams. He earned his first top 10 at the Daytona 500 qualifying race when he finished 10th. While sweeping floors for Ford's home and Moody operation in Charlotte, he drove in a race and won at Valdosta, Georgia. He was on his way. He was a winner in NASCAR's Elite Grand National Series. Yarbrough began winning some big events for Banjo, Matthews, and Wood Brothers racing in the years that followed. He eventually won the Daytona 500 four times and Southern five times. And that was his biggest thrill because that was at his home track just 10 miles from Timmonsville. Yarbrough also collected three consecutive Winston Cup championships, known today as the Cup Series. In 1976, 77, and 78, while driving for team owner Junior Johnson, a former driver himself that collected 50 wins before retiring from driving in 1966. Yarbrough retired from driving in 1988 after collecting 83 career victories. He was inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame in 2012. After leaving the sport, Yarbrough returned to the various businesses he made so successful over the years. His incredible story is nothing short of amazing. He is simply known as Kale, and he is arguably the toughest NASCAR stock car driver that ever lived.
2: Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast, episode number 66. That's two-thirds of the devil's number, 666. But That's beside the point. All right. Well, I want to welcome in my good buddy, Ben White, co-host of the Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. Ben, we've got a very, very interesting show. A lot of it's going to be related to one driver in particular, one of the biggest names ever in NASCAR history, a fan favorite. And uh, we'll talk about somebody that he also sometimes gets a little bit confused with with uh, from fans. But tell us about who we are going to focus in on this week's episode of the Lifetime of NASCAR.
1: Well, uh, Jerry, today we're going to be talking about the uh, wonderful and most talented and very tough Kyle uh, Yabura, a three-time NASCAR Cup Series Winston Cup champion. Kyle Yabura, he won three titles with uh, legendary Junior Johnson in 1976, 1977, and 1978. But there is an incredible backstory to the great Kyle that a lot of fans may not know about uh, and I would arg- say arguably he is the absolute toughest stock car driver to ever walk the face of the earth. This guy uh the things that he's done in his lifetime uh are amazing and being able to drive a stock car at 200 miles an hour was uh, in a lot of respects kind of pales to some of the other things he's done. I'm surprised that Hollywood didn't pick this guy up and make a major motion picture, uh, about kale. He, he, it's incredible. We're going to get into some of this and I, I'm telling you the guy has done it all. And some side stories that you'll really laugh about in this episode.
2: You know, the, the one thing about kale and that I've always, you know, thought about when I think of him or hear his name is the fact that he was, you know, we talked so much about drivers in the golden, <clears throat> excuse me, the golden era you know, the sixties and seventies primarily in NASCAR. And we you know we invariably talk about Richard Petty. We'll, you know, we'll talk about David Pearson to me. And again, this is my opinion, but to me, Kale at times has gotten, kind of gotten lost in the shuffle. I mean, yeah, he wins three uh, years in a row. In fact, <coughs> excuse me, he was the only driver to win three in a row until Jimmy Johnson came along and went one up winning five in a row. But to me, I've always felt Kale. Never got the exact amount of due that he was due, if you know what I'm saying. I mean, mm-hmm. am I wrong in thinking that? I mean, there was just so much emphasis placed on you know, guys like Petty and, and Pearson that Cale didn't get as much notoriety, credit, attention, whatever word you want to use. Am I right or am I wrong about that?
1: Well, um, mm-hmm. maybe to a degree, um, you know, Cale, uh, I, I think the reason you say that, and I think there's a good reason for it is the fact that he did most of his talking on the racetrack. He was very quiet. You know, we used to kid in the media about how kale would do an interview with him and he, he really just had, didn't have a huge amount to say. He wasn't right. a, t- a chatty Kathy type like Darrell Waltrip in, in the respect that, you know, you, and it was so funny. You'd talk to kale and say, can you give us any indication about how you're going to run today in the Daytona 500 and then, and he had this really sort of a uh, and has some of this, uh, Southern South Carolina draw to him. And he said, well, you know, the car is going to be this way or that way. And it's going to be super good and all this. And, and can you expand on that? And he, and he'd say, well, the car is going to be this way or that way. And it's going to be super, super good. I mean, You know, he just never, he he just couldn't get a lot out of kale with even with the crowbar, you couldn't get anything out of kale at all. And he wouldn't say a whole bunch about. Anything not, I mean, I know he didn't want to give away his secrets. You wouldn't ask him that kind of stuff, but he had that incredible, uh, South Carolina accent and he just, I don't know. He just wouldn't say a whole huge amount. Nice guy, but really super nice guy. And I still love talking to him if you can find him, that's the main thing he has still has the Honda dealership down there uh around the Darlington area and anytime you try to call you talk to his wonderful uh receptionist there at the car dealership and say all you gotta do is say is kale there today he said no nah, <laughs> he's not here today and he'll pop in two or three days a week and you know you're very really fortunate it's like trying to win the lottery to get him in there and <laughs> try to interview by phone or whatever but he's had several businesses for a lot of years
3: mm-hmm.
1: And um, he's still he doesn't come around the racetrack too much, but it's a it's an incredible story, uh, and we'll get into this about what a workaholic the guy still is. I think he may have slowed down some, but you know he he just is an amazing man. All the things that he's accomplished, not only on the racetrack but off the racetrack, and and I mean you can ask anybody. He's just like I say, just a workaholic about race cars, uh, and what he's done on his farm and business, and just an incredible guy.
2: Well, you know, and to follow it up with, and and uh, not to try to steal any of your thunder, because t- we'll talk about this in a while, but, I mean, you know, the guy raced not only in NASCAR, <clears throat> excuse me, but also the International Race of Champions, the Iraq Series. He also raced in the Indy 500 four different times, which, you know, really mm-hmm. surprised me. He raced at 24 Hours Le Mans in, in uh, 1981. I mean, you know, as uh, Burt Reynolds said in, in um, Smoking the Bandit, he can drive any fork and thing he wanted, including a fork and tr- <laughs> forklift that he wanted to, you know? So, you know yeah. so, I mean, yeah. th- th- the, the fact that he was so multi-talented, multi-versatile, and could race in so many different series... Um, what does that say about him, you know, as, as having such versatility? I mean, you know, you, you we talk about, you know, it, today in these days, and times we talk about guys who, you know, talk always about maybe they'll do the double one day, you know, Kyle Busch has always said he'll do the double where he'll race the Indianapolis 500 in the morning and then fly down to Charlotte for the Coca-Cola 600 in the evening. But, you know, uh, Kyle would race pretty much anything he could uh, you know, he, he would be able to, and get the time to do that and all that kind of thing. What does that say about his versatility, Ben?
1: Well, it says a lot, and I think it starts with a four-letter word, and it's not the four-letter word you might be thinking I'm going to say. <laughs> it's it's the word farm. You know, farm he, really? Yeah he he grew up on a pretty good sized farm, and there, in Timminsville, Sardis, South Carolina, which is not very far from Darlington, right there in South Carolina. And to give you a little bit of backstory, I think this is where you have to set the the foundation for for everything. Uh, uh, like I said, in the intro, his father was, uh, Julian Yarborough, his mother, Annie Yarborough, and they had a nice, uh, farm area there. And they had a little general store, had a little mm-hmm. cotton gin there too, but they had a lot of farm acreage and they would raise pre- predominantly tobacco. And so he and his two brothers would work this tobacco field, but other, other things, other crops on this farm, but they grew up with the mentality of, you know this is how we're going to make our money and you know i know from experience too with my wife's family and some of my family farm work is hard work especially tobacco i remember when i was a teenager going down to my sister's uh family's uh farm area in eastern north carolina the old way they used to do tobacco they don't do it this way now but she would go uh to the fields and of course you would uh pick the tobacco uh, leaves and you would wrap them in these uh, tobacco sticks. And then at the end of the day, you would someone would get in the top of a tobacco barn, and you'd lift them up to this person. And this tobacco barn, I mean, it felt like 300 degrees. It wasn't. But these things are tin uh, laden type buildings that mm-hmm. you someone crawls to the top and you have to hang them up there to, to cure and they stay in there for many months some poor soul and usually it was me would have to get up at the very top of this thing and they're sticky and they're hot and and that's the kind of thing kale and his brothers would do is is that's how you'd cure them in those days especially in the early uh, 30s and the 40s and we're talking pretty good sized barns in their case and so you know hard work farm work uh posts in the ground and and running tractors all day and and as i kid as i say this facetiously but it's sort of like, uh, you know, painting two houses and roofing two more and mm-hmm. and cutting 30 acres of whatever. And then you stop for lunch and then, you know, that kind of thing. And then you have an all afternoon of that. And this is six days, seven days a week, not accounting going to school and all the other responsibilities. And this is just kale yawber. This is a normal day. So when you get into the desire of driving a race car around Darlington Raceway, which is about 10 miles from, from Sardis and Timmonsville,
3: mm-hmm.
1: when, uh, you know, when this track is being built, it's like, holy cow, this is, it's going to be a lot of fun. So when you get in a race car, that's nothing compared to what I do on a daily basis, meaning kale. It's like, right. I mean, this is fun. I can get into something like this. And so that was his heart's desire to, to drive race cars. And, and the, as the funny story goes, he, he decides at 18 years old, not 21 that I want to drive in the Southern 500. So this would be about 1957 to back up just a bit in 1951, he did find a couple of loose boards around the place and he did sneak in to see the race. Uh, and he didn't have a ticket. He had $2 in his pocket for a couple of hot dogs and a Coke. And he did sneak in into that racetrack, uh, and then later on he did get in a race car. But let me let me back up just a smidge. Part of the problem that he had was sadly, uh, Mr. Yarbrough passed away in, in an air uh, a small aircraft crash, and when he was ten years old. This was 19th, uh, 1949. and uh, so he was ten years old. And um so, you know, that set everything in a in a different motion for Kale. He, He did not uh grow up with his father, even though Annie did remarry. And so he was sort of the breadwinner. He had to, you know, work hard on the farm. And uh you know he just had to sort of set his own way if you will on the very much the same respect Dale Earnhardt had to do that when his father Ralph passed away right but he's very close to his dad he entered some soapbox derby races early on in his, in his childhood but he knew racing was what he wanted to do so going back to this Darlington story uh he sneaks into the Darlington Raceway in 1951 uh they basically you know he somewhat gets thrown out I guess or from that venue because he didn't have a ticket no big deal so he comes back in 1957 drives a car for bobby weatherly and he, and again he applies for a nascar license but they say well, he's too young can't have one that doesn't slow him down and he continue <laughs> he's can, he sneaks his way back into the racetrack drives for a guy named bobby weatherly and he keeps sneaking back into the race car during qualifying and johnny Bruner senior spots him and, you, and if you can imagine this guy He's walking down pit road with a finger wag- wagging, saying, Stop that kid, stop that kid. <laughs> too young, one of those deals. Right. And so, you know, he gets him back out of the car. He, he takes the car out for qualifying for you, free laps, gets him out of the car. Rats, they caught me again. One of those days, Bobby gets back in the car. He said, Don't worry, Kale, we'll get you back in there. So as it turns out, Kale did run some laps in the race. And they did have a problem with the right front uh, hub. And, and Bobby ended up, you know, having to finish the race. Kale got yanked out a couple of times, very determined though. He didn't, didn't let that curtail his driving career as fate would have it. Of course he get he gets some good rides uh, as time goes on through. Uh, through the sixties, of course, and wins a race in Valdosta, Georgia, but he was sweeping floors. Now get this. He was sweeping floors with Holman Moody, which is Ford's big factory team in right. Charlotte. Right. So he hops in one of their cars and says, Hey, I can do well. I'll put my broom over here in the corner and I let me drive a car. Like, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> let him take a car to Valdosta, Georgia of all places. He ends up winning. No, gets noticed by banjo Matthews and banjo puts him in a car at the very, same track that he sneaks into in 1965. He takes one of Banjo's cars, gets into a, a scuffle with Sam McQuag, goes over the first and second turn wall in the car, and everybody's really worried about how's Kale, how's Kale? Did he get hurt? And he of course climbs up the bank, comes back down the the uh, you know the bank there, and he comes back combing his hair and he tells Banjo, I'm sorry, I think I bent your car. Well, you know, did <laughs> you bend it, you're you totaled it. But, you know, he, he continues to progress and gets with some of these really good race teams, like the wood brothers and, and banjo and, and proves that he has what it takes to win races. But I mean, that's the way kale was, he was just very determined, but it all started from working on that farm so hard. So by the time he got in a race car, it's like, like so many of the moonshiners were, it's like, oh, this is easy money compared to what I grew up with and having to run moonshine and work on farms and work from, from sitting under oak trees till I could see what, you know, let the light of the day come so I could see what I was doing and work way into the night, uh, driving race cars, nothing compared to what I used to do. So it's typical of Kelly Albury story, tough as nails. And he was really, really good at driving race cars. Well,
2: you know, the thing that, that kind of surprised me is, you know, we're talking about a whole different era, obviously back there in the sixties and seventies, but as successful as he was, you know, I'm sure he pocketed some decent amount of money, you know, if for all his racing exploits, but he never really seemed to lean on that. He seemed to, you know, just do the the day job at the farm every single day, like you said. I mean, could I mean in theory, could he have made enough from racing back then that he didn't really need to tend the farm or or not?
1: No, I think, yeah, he could have, but I think Kale grew up with this mentality that everything could be taken away in in a blink of an eye and that, you know, because it goes back to the fact that, uh, his father was taken away in a blink of an eye and that Mm -hmm. changed everything. You know, he really relied on his father to be there for him. And that was a simple, uh, trip. He was coming, his father was coming back from Myrtle beach. In that single airplane that kale had ridden with him many times, they would go up in this airplane to check the crops and do certain things. It was mm-hmm. a business trip. He was coming back from
3: mm-hmm.
1: and very close to his dad, they would go to short tracks together and they'd share hot dogs and Cokes together. And he was close to his dad. And, and actually kale was at a, a boy's summer camp, uh, when that happened and the, the camp director had come to kale and, and said, well, I really. I need to sit down with you and tell you something. And he could tell that this was bad news that he was about to receive. And he was very emotional about it and it was very hurtful for him. And I think what happened in that, uh, in that instance was it taught him two things to never take people for granted. Number one Mm -hmm. and number two, that everything can be snatched away in a blink of an eye. And I think by doing that. Uh it, he was already kind of tight with money anyway, and it just very appreciative of what he had and the money that he he gained from that. He was sort of taught that by his parents. But yeah, and his racing was one thing, but he also felt like he was a shrewd businessman, let me put mm-hmm. it that way. Right, and, right. and some of even some of his sponsorship situations, you know, signing. I remember if I'm telling this correctly, and I think I am, when he went to work for Harry Rainier in the Hardy sponsorship. Some one of those deals was, okay, we we may not pay you in money per se, but we're going to pay you in restaurants, which I thought was pretty, pretty unique and, and shrewd in a way. Cause it's like, okay, you can, I can generate more money by, you know, that's what he wanted is like, give me eight restaurants or eight, you know, fast food restaurants as part of my deal. And you I'll make more money that way than I will in cash and that was his he was a, a very smart businessman
2: so so they they and they, he is they, he's they,
1: not he's not passed away he is he's still very very smart in his business dealings but they
2: turn okay so i'm, I'm a little confused so they would turn over essentially ownership of like
1: seven or eight race restaurants yeah. in lieu of paying him right franchises yeah wow
2: that's and amazing. so
1: yeah and so that kind of thing would go on and and um uh, yeah or st- say stock in mm. versus uh you know monetary you know cash or whatever but back you got to understand back in those days unlike today say a driver might make a set uh i'm being hypothetical because i don't know what the number is i say okay you sign with ben white racing and i've hired a, a top notch driver and i say all right here's your again hypothetical i'll give you 6 million dollars a year for three years and doesn't matter where you finish, I want you to win.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But, um, and then, you know, you, you, and that's what you win back in those days, uh, a driver would get a hundred thousand dollars a year, and then you get 50% of the winnings on top of that, or 40% in the top five or 30% in the top 10, the kind mm-hmm. of thing, that's how it works. And so, yeah, but a hundred thousand dollars in 1972 or three was of course a lot of money, but that's the way those situations work. So some of those sponsorships say in the mid eighties might, might include saying, okay, I'll give you X number of dollars. And this is to sweeten the pot to come over. We'll give you, you know, say it was a fast food restaurant. We'll give you five franchises.
2: That is cool. uh, that kind of
1: thing, yeah, and that's how like some of those types of things work. But but Kale is a, a, a very good businessman. He had some uh, car dealerships and some dry cleaners. That was and those are still in business today, I believe. And one of the funny stories about the dry cleaners was that his mother Annie, who's a sweet, sweet lady, I, she's passed away now, but a fan he would have some of his driver's uniforms there to be cleaned. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he's and a fan might come in and say, Oh, I love that driver's uniform from the past, or whatever. And said, And she'd say, Oh, that's so wonderful. Why don't you just you can take it, you can have it. <laughs> and and he's like, What do you mean you're giving away all the driver's driver suits? You know, <laughs> so some of those past driver suits are in the hands of fans because she just was so sweet about it, she just let them have them. And. So that's why Kale doesn't have that many driver's seats left anymore because he would be so kind to the fans and let them have them. So uh, yeah. And that, that went on too, but there's a lot of funny stories about Kale and his toughness that we can get into after you ask me a few more questions, but these well, are, yeah.
2: Right. Well, you know, you speaking of toughness, and I wanted to, to talk about this before we get into more of those stories. Uh, when you say tough, I mean, he was also not only a very, Um, and you alluded to this earlier about, you know, the, um, um, he was not only a tough racer, but he also played football for a long time, you know, in Hmm. high school. And then he, then he left the team obviously to go race, but he, he had the talent. I am reading here that he played semi-pro ball. I mean, and he had a trial with the Washington Redskins. I mean, this guy was no shirk on the football field either.
1: No, no. He was a a star player for the Timmonsville high school, Timmonsville, South Carolina high school team. Uh, played fullback and other positions like, you know, Richard Petty had told me back when he played for random in high school that, you know, they only had, you know, eight or 10 guys, whatever. And mm-hmm. the, the, you played offense and defense. Well, Kale did too. I mean, keep in mind, he was a tough little guy and it all, again, it goes back to that four letter word farm. Yeah. And I mean, he worked and worked and worked and worked. I mean, his workout sessions were, you know, digging post holes with post hole diggers and putting in pie, uh, well pipe and and also um putting in post hole uh, posts and post holes and that's just everyday stuff i mean you know it's just like that's what you do on a farm you just work your butt off Mm -hmm. and of course he would work out i guess on football fields and stuff but yeah he was a very good football player and he was also uh, a golden gloves boxing champion also oh what can this guy not do And, (laughs) and so yeah and there's a famous story about he also had a scholarship to clemson Coach Frank Howard, who was there for 30 years, a well well-renowned uh, football coach. Uh, there was a, a story about Kale needed to not go to practice one time or a game, and he's like because he needed to go race somewhere. And uh, Coach Howard said, "Well, look, if you know if you don't show up for this, is like you're off the team." And he said, well, "I'm sorry, I got a race. I mean, I'm supposed to go, and I got to go win this race. So if you show up for that race and you don't come to this football game." Then you're off the team," he said. "Well, I guess that's just the way it's going to have to be." And coach called him back a week or so later. "said Kale, I really need you on the football field," and he said, "Well, coach, I'm just really going to have to pursue this racing thing." And the coach said, "Well, that racing thing," he said, "You're not going to be squat on the racetrack. You're going to, <laughs> to just—that's just not going to work out for you. You're right. going to just fail miserably at that." Needless to say, that didn't work out that he failed. He actually was, he did was very, very successful as a race car driver, but coach Howard was convinced like you're wasting your time at this so-called racing thing, whatever that is. And, you know, he really wanted him to go on and pursue, uh, you know, his, his dream is in, in on the football field, but yeah, he was, he was, uh, contracted to be possibly going to play for the Washington Redskins or what used to be Washington Redskins. And right. I mean, I just, I was kind of floored by that. I d- I learned that recently that, you know, he was, he had aspirations to play football with him and the kid, the guy could do anything he wanted to, but fortunately he went to the, to the, to the stock car side because Darlington raceway was so important to him when they were building that. And he's like, wow, this is in my hometown or whatever. And I love racing and this is where I, what I want to pursue. But he, he basically from the looks of things, he could have pretty much done anything he wanted to
2: i just have one more question i want to ask you before we get into some more stories about kale this this is kind of a uh, a downer a negative question or whatever however Mm. you want to phrase it kale though did take some flack if i remember correctly when he bought his honda or uh, built his honda dealership uh, down in florence south carolina he got some flack from people in that area because it was a honda dealer and this was actually he proceeded um, Honda, um, uh, you know, well, I mean, Toyota rather coming into the uh, into the NASCAR series, but he did catch some fleck because you know, it was you know, at the time everybody said, Well, it's that's a Japanese car maker and that kind of thing. Do you, do you remember the, that? I, mean, I remember that vaguely, but I mean, I know there was, yeah. it was it
1: was an instance, so I remember that. Uh, I don't remember a lot about that, but um, maybe that was the case. Um, yeah, I, I do, I do remember a little bit about that. Okay, but, I, was, uh, I was curious, but, yeah, yeah, not not really a whole lot. I mean, I. You know, I guess it was just another one of the business decisions he felt like he needed to do. And as far as I know, it's still thriving and right. doing well. And exactly. I think it was just one of those era-type things that some people maybe gave him some flack on. But, I mean, it's, it's done well, and uh, we're in a different era, so to speak, now. But, yeah, I think it's done well over the years. Exactly. All right, let's talk more about Kale, the driver, Kale, the individual,
2: Kale, the person. Yep. Is there one story that is like your absolute favorite story about Kale, be it, you know, in the race car, out of the race car, you know, a uh, certain race that he, you know, how he wanted or lost. I mean, what's, what's Ben White's number one. Well, there, Kale
1: I don't know that I can tell you one. I got a bunch.
2: <laughs> okay. How about
1: just, the top 10? <laughs> okay. Well, maybe so, but I just know this, you know, we're talking about how tough he is. Well, right. I do know that when he was quite a bit younger, uh before he met betty joe his wife and they've been married for many many years I since want to say 1961
2: 50. so that means that they've been married yeah. for 60, 60 what, 61 years yeah
1: 60 yeah 61 yeah sweet sweet lady love her dearly and uh always a lot of fun to talk to and we we don't see them come to the racetrack nearly as much as we used to but uh, just wonderful, wonderful lady. But when I think I'm not sure if this was the, if it was her, he was trying to oppress her, our former girlfriend early in the game.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, he was, um, trying to, they were in this what he called the swimming hole, which is about a mile from where they lived mm-hmm. again, this is out in, in the country. Well, he and some buddies and some friends were, they all got together to go swimming one day and they had built this plank off of one of the trees and they had, of course, strung a, a pretty good sized rope up in one of the, one of the limbs.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, they, they did some swinging off of that and everything's going well. And Kale says, well, I'm going to swing further out here a little bit. Cause I've got to impress this girl. And so they got on the plank and the, he swings way on out there. And he, he was aiming for this log to see if it could go past the log. well, as it turns out the log wasn't a log. It was an alligator.
2: What? Oh my yeah. God. Oh my yeah. God.
1: So the alligator, uh, basically says, hi, kale, <laughs> <laughs> kale says hi alligator. And he realized he was somewhat in trouble. So as strong again, as he was, he got, he started wrestling this alligator and he got to the tip of the alligator's mouth. He said, well, the only hope I have and not lose an arm or a leg is to get around this alligator's mouth and he right. put, put the mouth, you know, put his arm and his body. And he wrestles this alligator to the shore of where this, uh, the lake is. And basically the other friends grab, he said, grab some limbs and beat this alligator, but he wrestled the alligator by himself. And I don't know how this thing had to be as big as he was. Cause he's not, I mean, he's not tall, but he's stocky. Right. Right. And so, um, he wrestles the alligator to the side and it kind of beat this alligator toy finally just gets mad and leaves the alligator not (laughs) kale. and so that was one instance that okay he escapes death the next time this kind of thing happens he he loved to watch thunderstorms probably still does Mm -hmm. so he go again this is at the home place he's i don't know how old he's got to be at this point mm, 15 16. So entirely different story. So he's watching this really bad thunderstorm come closer and closer to his house. <laughs> I'm not making these up and this lightning strikes in the front yard. And he sort of watches this thing <laughs> come toward the house Okay. and he's, he's sending in the house, but he's watching this through the window. Well, it comes up the porch and wham strikes the house and strikes him. He's been struck by lightning. <laughs>
3: Oh my God!
1: So so this lightning bolt knocks him all the way across the room in the living room of their home, and it it nails the TV, knocks some things off the Mm wall. I mean, he's like this: this house has been struck by lightning, and he's in the middle of it. Right, right. Okay, so he comes to, and he's like, "Holy crap! I just got lightning!" (laughs) And so he's like, he said, he says, "I felt my body, I felt my arms, you know, rung my bell, but." I'm okay. (laughs) So, so, all right. Now he's wrestled an alligator. He's been struck by lightning. All right. There was another instance where they're, again, he's out with friends and he's again, trying to impress a girl. So he's out jumping around or whatever. And he, at the, he's jumping up and down. He looks down and there's a rattlesnake in the grass. So two, you know, it's like, he's coming down out of the air. He sees this rattlesnake coiled up and he's like, all right, I'm toast. I'm going to get hit by this rattlesnake. So he gets bit by the rattlesnake. Oh no. Well, he, you know, of course his mom is close by and he's, he gets bit and poisoned and all that. Well, what's he do? He pulls out his pocket knife and quite cuts this area where he gets hit on his leg and starts to suck this poison out and that helps. But he still needs to go see the doctor. Well, as it turns out <laughs> that uh, for whatever reason, the rattlesnake died. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> So he survives. Now let's recap, shall we? He survives the alligator. He survives the lightning hit and he survives the rattlesnake. The rattlesnake died. Okay. This is kale. Yawber we're talking about. Okay. <laughs> Later in his life, oh no, not more. (laughs) No, there's more. Later in his life, he also has a single engine airplane. Okay, and he's flying around somewhere around South Carolina, around the home, whatever, and he looks down. And for whatever reason, this engine quits. All right. Mm -hmm. And so, holy crap, here I am again. (laughs) I'm sure (laughs) he's recapping all these, you know, near death stories that he's been through. And he sets this thing down and it goes nose down, nose dives into this field, might have been his field.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And he was not injured, but he crashes an airplane. So the alligator, the rattlesnake, the lightning hit, and he crashes an airplane. I think he crashed twice, I think. Oh, God. And so, I mean, this is Kale, and this is a guy who travels every Sunday afternoon after the national anthem is done at 200 miles an hour. I mean, why I continue to ask this question? Why was there not a movie made about this man? Uh, he he's been through everything, and one more to share. Oh, this is all, this is the final one more to share story.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Back in the mid seventies, I think this happened in nineteen seventy seven. This is true. He had, he got on his private airplane. He flew around a lot after he won a couple of championships, and his crew who all the time played tricks on kale <laughs> was he was by himself and he looks back and he's, he's already in the air flying from one track to the other flying home after he'd been in a race and he looks back and his crew has tied up this little cub bear and they put it in the back seat of his airplane. Oh no. All right. And so this bear is not happy at all about being tied up and he's, even more unhappy about being on this airplane. So he looks back and, he's like, yeah, holy crap, there's a bear on my airplane. And <laughs> he knew exactly who did it probably Henry B- Benfield, who was with Junior Johnson's team for many years. And he didn't know anything about it. Hey, I'll see you guys at the next race. Okay, Gail. And this thing's chewing through the ropes. Oh, no, no, no. Now now he's up at 10,000 feet, whatever the case. Now, how do you radio the FAA or the, the tower? What's the code for, I have a bear on my plane, (laughs) so he can't do that. So he's like, he knows he's not too far from where he's supposed to land. So he's like, okay, I've got to get to where I'm getting. I need to get to this place before this bear gnaws through that last rope. Right. So anyway, the end of the story is that he does get down and he does get to where he needs to. And just about the time he touches down and gets that thing stopped, the bear gets to the last rope and the rope breaks and he hauls his butt out of that thing <laughs> and shuts the door. And, and then you see the plane going nuts and, and he's he's all over the place inside. So I think some of the crew guys were to meet him at this particular airport. And they're just going bananas. They're just laughing their butts off at this, to, to see his reaction. So he's not happy that he's in there tearing up his airplane. I think even junior said, whatever he does, I'll pay the bill, but this is, this is the life of Kale Yarborough. It, it's, it's, it's either parked on the porch with a glass of tea or whatever, <laughs> or it's 200 miles an hour. Okay. I, I I do not make these up. These are all true stories. Well, I've so got to ask, you have them Jerry. Okay. But,
2: but we're missing two elements. though. I mean, okay, if, what? You know, again, I, I'm, you're always the guy that's half the glass is half full. I'm the guy that's uh-huh. half empty. I'm mean, yeah. So, so he didn't have it. I mean, he had the alligator, he had the real snake, he had the the plane crash, he had the, the bear, but he didn't have anything to do with either a hurricane or fire.
1: No, no, but I will say this. Now, oh, he but, did have, okay. He, he did have one thing happen. It was a sad story. He had all of his trophies in a building on his property. And there was a show. Uh, it was a a water heater that misfired, or mis, mis something happened on it, and the building did burn down. Oh, okay. Sadly, that's not a happy story. No,
2: I agree. Okay.
1: All of his trophies were lost in this fire. That was that was the fire. Uh, and I think he did lose some of them. I think he got replaced by some speedways or something. But yeah, that that was not a sad. That was not a happy story or funny story. That was a sad story. Exactly right. But right. uh, yeah, but I don't know about the hurricane thing. I do know that we were at Talladega one year in the in the press box, and there was a hurricane that came down the backstretch or a tornado. Excuse me, tornado.
3: Close but, enough. Uh, yeah, hurricane but, Close enough.
1: But there was another story about Kale in '84. he was trying to run for the pole at daytona you may remember this and he was at 210 or something on the back stretch and the car got air got under it and flipped it opposite of what it should have and he flipped during qualifying and and the car was totally destroyed it was the number 28 hardy's car it was the Mm -hmm. harrier in their car if you remember right and he wasn't injured but here's the fun part of this story now this is a true story also getting off the beaten path but it's interesting they didn't have a backup car that year and for this because they were certain they were going to win the pole and win the race. That car was so, so good. And Kale said, I just wanted to punch it just a smidge more to see if I, he had the pole one, but he wanted to see if he could get a little bit more out of it. And as I said, the wind, if you can imagine, it, it flipped from left to right. Mm-hmm. So the wind got under it. And there are photos of Kale looking out the passenger side of the car. You can see his goggles, and he's already already way out of shape. Before it actually got wheels just lifted off the ground like an airplane. Right. And it got out of shape. Well, here's the rest of the story. Waddell Wilson's the crew chief was like, what are we going to do now? They remembered that they had a Pontiac Le Mans at a Hardee's restaurant as a show car. <laughs> and they went to this Hardee's and said, where's the car? Oh, it's at a Hardee's. We need to go get that car. And they took that thing back either to Charlotte, I'm pretty sure they took it back to Charlotte. And they retrofitted that show car and they took it back to daytona and they ended up winning the race with it
3: it oh, was a man. show
1: car oh, it was man. a show car that's all they had left right right and they <laughs> put that thing through the through the ringer and they changed the rear end and they changed the motor and they changed a bunch of stuff on it and it was already decaled up the way it should have been but it was sitting on the grass in front of a hardy's restaurant and they put it on a trailer a single car trailer hauled butt back to Charlotte with it and they fixed it. Kale got in it and he ended up winning the Daytona 500 with it. That is a true story.
2: And I was just at Hardy's yesterday as a matter of fact. So there you so go. there you go. <laughs> That's right. Well, stranger
1: you know, th- than fiction. You cannot, I mean, truth, stranger than fiction. You cannot make it up.
2: You know, the, the, the one thing in a, uh, about Kale is that, you know, he was so tough. Uh, both on and off the racetrack, but he also had a caring side. I know there's a there's a few stories, uh, you know, out, out there about you know he was he he showed his um, uh, you know his his niceness or his gentleness or whatever word you want to use. Tell us about Kale, the not so tough tale, Kale, so to speak.
1: Yeah, he was and, and is, and and he. When I say was, we just haven't seen him at the racetrack in a lot of years, but. Oh yeah, a huge, big-hearted guy that uh, would do anything in the world for you. Um, I know he worked with a lot of charities through the years, mm-hmm. and would give the shirt off his back to anybody that needed it. Just and funny. I mean, he could tell some pretty funny stories about about things. But what was so funny in his delivery was that he would tell you just enough to make it funny, um, and very quiet sort of guy too. I mean, he just like I said it earlier on the podcast. He just you have to really dig deep to get him to talk about stuff. He was very shy. I don't know, shy or just close to the, to the vest. He just wouldn't say a lot. I, I will tell you a funny story that happened in the, uh, I know it's, we're talking about charity stuff, but this just came to mind too. Right. There was a time that he, you know, he was up in a hotel room. This is sometime. I believe it's in the, in the late sixties, you know, a lot, a lot of the drivers would get. Around the pool uh, on a set, especially around Darlington. I keep bringing Darlington up, but it's so significant to Kale's career. You know, they used to race the Southern 500 on Monday because right. it was Labor Day. Right. And so they'd be around the, the hotel pool and hanging out. And Kale, you know, maybe he'd watch a booby or something be up there in the hotel room. And Tiny Lund, who wasn't tiny, he's like six five, big guy. And some, he looked around one day and he said, well, where's Kale? He, where, he should be down here with us having a beer or whatever. It's so, like, I don't know. He's up in the room. And he said, well, he ain't going to be up in the room for very long. <laughs> so Kale stu, stands about, I don't know, five, eight, five, nine, maybe. And Tiny's, like I said, six, five. So he marches his butt up there, up the steps. And this is a motel type thing. Right. right. And so Kale's up there and he's on the mattress laid out or taking a nap or whatever. And he says, "Kale, you got to get your tail down here for the rest of us to enjoy your company. He says, "Well, I don't want to go down there to the pool. I want to watch the movie. He's like, no, you're not. <laughs> so he tries to pick kale up and kale says, I'm not going to see. Yeah, you are. And so he picks up kale and the mattress. <laughs> And he brings the mattress down. You know, it's like a Howard Johnson's type hotel, not one that you'd have to come through a hallway and down right, the steps right. It's one of those open door type things. So had, had, the, the
2: entrance was on the outside in other words, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah so exactly. the entrance is on the outside. It's got the little mid midway stairways. Right. Right. And so he's got kale and the mattress and they're coming down the steps. And he says, well, you need to join us. He says, oh no, I don't want to He Oh, so tiny proceeds to, take kale and the mattress and just dumps them right in the middle of the (laughs) pool. And that's the kind of fun they used to have in the late sixties. And, and and when they stayed in that type of hotel, but just a fun, loving, fun guy. But yeah, the charity stuff, he did a lot of that kind of thing for people. And he was a lot like Dale Earnhardt and a lot of like others. He just didn't want credit for the things that he did, but the foundations and stuff like that, because he knew how important that was and there were times that people helped him out during his life and, and just a very guy, very sweet, good, kind hearted guy behind the scenes and would do anything in the world for you if you needed him to. Yeah.
2: Right. Now, one other thing about Kale that I wanted to bring up, and I know you've got more stories, but you know, the, he would always, I wouldn't say always, but for the non NASCAR fan, the new NASCAR fan at the time, there was always some kind of a, or a little bit of confusion between Kale and Leroy Yarborough. No, no relation. No, the, the last names were spelled differently, but everybody always thought that Kale and Leroy were brothers or cousins at mm-hmm. the very least, but they also became very good friends
1: off, on and off the racetrack too, as well. Yeah, they did. They did. And you're exactly right. There was no relation to the two. Uh, Leroy spelled his, it was more like Yarbrough and Yarbrough. And Kaylee Yarborough. And right. it, but they were very, uh, very tough race drivers on on the track and raced each other and had a lot of respect for each other on the racetrack and off. Uh but yeah, they sort of come up about the same way and about the same time. And ironically, both drivers drove for junior Johnson. Uh uh Leroy Yarborough drove Ford's uh for junior and won the triple crown in 1969 meaning talladega daytona and darlington before there was a triple crown uh before the southern i mean the uh, 1985 race races when bill elliott won winston million right uh but yeah he did it he was the first to do it actually and then uh kale also drove for junior but he drove Chevrolets for junior as well so yeah but they were just uh very good friends uh off the track and on the track i mean they were Good, uh, hard charging competitors on the racetrack, but no relation at all. To, the names were spelt differently and from, from two different parts of the country.
2: Yeah. Right. Let's let's talk about Kale, excuse me, Kale and his relationship with Junior Johnson. I mean, you know, he wins three championships with him. How did that whole thing come about and how did it play out? I mean, uh, you know, and what was it that made Kale decide to leave? I think it was
1: what, 80 or 81, I think,
2: if I remember correctly. He left yeah. there?
1: Well, what happened on that deal was that, um, you know, it looked as though. Well, let me back way back. um, sure. The the way that it even came about for G, for Kale to to join Junior Johnson, you know, you talked earlier about him driving in the IndyCar series. Right. Um, back in 1971, I believe, it's when it was, uh, there were some rules disputes with Ford uh, Motor Company and NASCAR and uh, Cale had been driving for the Wood Brothers. And so when Ford elected that time, and it happened several times with Ford and Dodge and various times with NASCAR disputes, and so they would come in and pull out and come in and pull out. Well, this particular time, uh, you know, Cale had some obligations with his businesses and such, and, and he just really couldn't afford to step aside of racing completely. Mm -hmm. until this this dispute or whatever uh, had ended and so he basically had to step away from the wood brothers and say i've got to do something else well gene white who was uh an indycar team owner said we'll come to the indycars and we'll strike up a deal well in 71 and 72 that's why kale went to indycars he really didn't enjoy indycars i don't think as much as he did stock cars but he really had nowhere else to go Mm -hmm. And so, so Bobby Allison leaves juniors team and not so great terms. They didn't get along as well between Bobby and junior and Herb nab. And it was just not a good situation at all. Had they stayed together? I I personally think Bobby and junior could have won a lot of championships together, but it just didn't work. They won 10 races in 72, uh, looked like they, they could stay together. That would have been. It would have been Bobby Allison and junior winning those three championships right, and not right, right. So the door opened, um, you know, Bobby gets a phone call late in 72. And, and junior says, I got a chance to get the best driver in NASCAR. And he calls him in the middle of the night and Bobby says, we'll get him. And had he been awake, he might've had a better answer. But, <laughs> you know, that's what Bobby's told me many Great. times and so so they go with kale Well, kale joins them in 73 stays from 73 to 1980 and uh you know they win championships and a ton of races together but ironically this is the the real true story of why kale left his daughters come to him he's about to go get to a major meeting with a sponsor in, in 1980 and this is going to set the world on fire, and it was going to put him and Junior together for another five years or something. Right, right. right. And his daughters say, "Well, my my bicycle's broken again." And he said, "Well, why didn't you tell me?" And he's like, "Dad, we've been telling you for weeks and weeks," and it sort of tugged on his heartstrings a little bit because he's working all the time, gone all the time, never home all the time. Mm-hmm. And finally, he just went to junior and said, I have no family life. I have no, my daughters don't know me anymore. My wife don't know me anymore. I'm working all the time. I'm driving all the time. I'm racing all the time. So that's when he decided to leave junior and go to MC Anderson for 1981. And so that's when that, that breakup happened. And that's when he left junior well, had he stayed with junior, maybe there'd been some more championships, but it was time for, for kale to sort of step back. We'd won three championships. So you're talking about Junior Johnson. Well, nobody really thought anybody else was <coughs> going to win three championships in a row again, let alone seven, <coughs> right? Because Dale Jordan Sr. did it, Richard Petty did it, but nobody could put their finger on anybody else coming up with seven titles, really. I mean, it was a, a lofty uh, goal to right. have. And I mean, uh, who would have thought? Jim, no, I'm not taking anything away from, from Jimmy Johnson, but nobody really had their finger on that. So, when Jimmy has three in a row, then Kale, you know, I remember when we had the awards banquet, and suddenly out of nowhere, here's Kale Yarbrough. And it was, I remember it that, was, right, right? It right. was a very nice gesture, and it was very, it sort of lit up the room when Kale surprised us and was there. <coughs> and so uh, and I, I think that sort of struck up a real nice friendship between Jimmy and, and kale, and then as time went on, suddenly there's what, four more championships for Jimmy. And, uh, so anyway, they just sort of nicked and picked convicted each other in a friendly way and they became friends and exactly. Jimmy and kale did, but, but to answer your question, I guess, in a long-winded way, it was just something that no one had ever won three titles in a row. That was kale's crown.
3: Right. Right.
1: And then suddenly Jimmy did it, and it was kind of a fun picking sort of thing between Cale and Jimmy. And Jimmy was uh, happy that Kale was there, and and I know Cale was proud of him for doing it. And uh, it was just like a father-son thing.
2: really. Right, right, right. You know, going back to that the story about Jimmy, I remember very clearly that there were a lot of uh, NASCAR fans at the time Uh, certainly there were a lot of NASCAR fans pulling for Jimmy, but there were also a lot of NASCAR fans pulling against him because they didn't want to see or Kale's uh, three championships in a row record broken. Um, And you're right. I mean, they did, you know, Kale and Jimmy, um, you know, they, they kind of joshed about it. You know, they, they, it was a good natured thing, but the NASCAR fans themselves, I mean, they, they got pretty hot about it. They did did not want to see Jimmy win number four and break Kale's record. Um, Do you remember all that stuff?
1: I remember some of it. I think, uh, you know, some fans weren't, weren't happy about it, but I think kale was, I I think Kale was okay with it because like, this is my, that was my time. This is your time. And, um, I, I don't think he was, I don't think kale was upset about it at all. I think he was fine with it, but you're right. I do remember some folks weren't happy, but you know, progress was being made and, and it was a new era and the cars were different. Drivers were different and. Yeah, you know, I, I I vaguely remember that, but Kale was he was fine with it. He was, I do I do remember the night of the banquet that we were in New York, and, right. and it was really a surprise to everybody. And I love the way NASCAR handled that because Kale did come out, and it was so great to see him for one because we had not seen him in a while, and he was he's sort of reclusive a little bit. I I don't know why, but he just I think he res, he does it respectfully. It was you know because. He he's had his career and now he's having fun, uh, doing his thing. I don't know how active he is today. I do know, as I said, in my introduction that, uh, he has spent a lot of time building this 40 acre lake that he so wanted to do. And I think he started on it when he was what 72 or three years old. <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> some people can't get out of the rocker at 72 or three years old and he walks in the house and says, Betty Joe, I'm going to build a 40 acre lake. And she's so used to this kind of thing. She's like, okay, whatever. And so he gets out the bulldozer and it begins clearing trees and land. And, you know, he loves bulldozers. And so he just starts doing that. And he's basically been a one man you know, Noah trying to build the ark kind of thing. And everybody's it's like a Harold, Harold Brasington. everybody's looking at yep. him funny, but, you know, it's like, yeah, I think I want to just do a 40 acre lake, okay, whatever, you know, knock yourself out. So he's been doing that. And I think he's, I'm sure completed it now, but he's wanted to do that for a lot of years. So that's what keeps him busy. And I think he's slowed down some, I think Donnie Allison, ironically, it was Donnie that went to see him recently. And said, he's doing great. I talked to Donnie and asked him. He, as a matter of fact, I saw Donnie at Talladega and he said, you know, I went to see kale the other day. And you think that's the last guy in the world. You think well, we're going to go see <laughs> Kale after 1979, but you know what? They, they've been really close friends. Matter of fact, the week after that 1979 race at Daytona, they were best buddies. And that was a heathen of the moment thing. And, and kale and Donnie and Bobby are good friends and like Bobby and Richard Petty are good friends. And, you know, they, were, I saw a photo of Donnie and Kale and Kale's living room and arm in arm and just best of friends. So yeah. And and I think Kale is slowed a bit, but why not at, I don't know how old he is now, 85 or something. So yeah, I mean, it's good that he's, I think still in good health and all that. So uh, good for him.
2: I, I, I have to go back though. I mean, I'm trying not to laugh, but this is such a great story that you you know told us about uh let's call it lake kale for example (laughs) 40 (laughs) acre lake by almost by himself i'm 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 hoping he had some help but maybe he didn't maybe he did it all by himself and you know the first thing that flashed through my mind when you said that ben was the guy and his name escapes me but the guy that did the um um oh what was it the um in south dakota where he did the uh uh oh gosh what was it the the um it was kind of like Mount Rushmore, but it was dedicated to the Indians. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, Oh God, I'm drawing a blank now. On the name I'm there.
1: sorry. I can't help you there. If it's it, not it, NASCAR related and four cars, <laughs> can't help you.
2: <laughs> well, no, There was a guy who started building this, um, was it chief sitting Bull or something like that? He, he, he carved it into the mountains, uh, in South Dakota. And it was not very far from Mount Rushmore. It was only like maybe 30 miles from Mount Rushmore, maybe 40 miles. And, he made that his life's uh you know job he did it for like 30 40 years before he passed away and that kind of that that um element kind of re- re- resounded within me by kale building that lake i mean you said yeah. and that and the thing what amazed me is when you said that and you said you said it in kind of an offhanded way but that's what what made the story so great you you go well, you know, Kale started building it around to the age of 73. I go, what? 73 yeah. years old? I yeah.
1: Mean- <laughs> I don't know exactly when he started it, but I mean, it's, I, you know, I'd have to, my math is horrible. I've never been a good mathematician, but I mean, you know, 75 or eight, 78 years old, but you got to keep in mind, you know, my father-in-law is 94 mm-hmm. and he's, he's very much like Kale in the respect that he's got to be doing something all yep. the time. And yep. he's extremely... Yep. He's extremely um, fit, and Kale has has been very much that way. I think he's had a couple of race-related issues as far as I think you know he crashed at Rockingham uh, in the mid '80s, I think '83 or '84, and I think it was with Daryl Waltrip involved in that crash, and he hurt his shoulder, and that shoulder has really caused Kale a lot of problems over the years. But other than that, I think he's been been in pretty good shape, but that farm again, I go back to that word, that farm mentality, I know for a fact that if you worked hard like that all your life, you stay very, very fit and exactly. father-in-law's that way. And I can't keep up with him. He's 94 and I'm 61. And he's the kind of guy that if he's not painting something, building something, nailing something. He's miserable. And I think, I think Kale has always had that mentality. So, so what I'm leading up to at 75, 78 years old to build a lake, if you got a big enough bulldozer um, and a chainsaw and all these tools that would allow you to do it, it's not inconceivable to think that in a five year period or something that you could spend your days, four days a week doing something like that to keep active. And I don't, I don't, I'm certainly doesn't have like farmland and growing crops and stuff like that, but that would be something that would keep him active. Yeah. Right. If he's physically active, if other things aren't going on physically, I think he could pull that off. And last I heard, you know, he's, he's doing with a little help from the good Lord above with some, adding some water from rain and things like that. Hey, good luck to him. I mean, I I think it's wonderful that he could stay active
2: i found what i was talking about it was the crazy horse mountain memorial in uh um it's in south dakota it was started by a an artist by the name of Korzek zielkowski in 1948 and here we are in 2022 and they're still building that thing so that that's kind okay. of where i well. you know that kyle or in Kale's lake kind of reminded me of that i mean it, it was it's a a work in progress and it's going to probably be a work in progress you know for the rest of his life pretty much okay
1: well i i said 40 maybe 20 acres i don't know but it's big close it's, enough it's, yeah it's big I, it was you know, big it's, that's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not uh it's not 100 yards it's 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 supposed to be a pretty good size so right. that's all i know
2: now, did kale ever do anything um nascar related but not behind the wheel now you know i know like you know, you have guys like Ned Jarrett, Dale, um, uh, Darrell um, Waltrip, uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. I mean, guys who you know, after their racing career was over with, they became great broadcasters. Did Cale ever have a, a role in a, as a broadcaster or that? I,
1: I know. I think he did a couple of guest appearances um, on uh, some some race broadcasts. Now, I know in the in the '70s, uh, he did a couple of TV shows. Um, as, a, as in guest appearances um but no as far as as being a broadcaster or something like that he was on the dukes of hazard a couple of times. i remember that I yeah that. i don't
2: remember right, right, right. but
1: yeah uh, as far as being a broadcaster he may have filled in with uh, ken squire on cbs sports a time or two but not no not on a weekly basis or something like that no uh, he won his last race at charlotte motor speedway Uh, in October of 1985 Mm -hmm. and he finished first and bill Elliott second. And that was his last victory number 83. And after he did that, it was pretty much it. I mean, he said goodbye and retired at the end of the year and, and that was pretty much it and he, and I think that's the way he wanted to go out kind of a winner, he finished the season and, and I think he always wanted to do that. He didn't want to linger. After that, he was a team owner, and that's something we really hadn't talked too much about yet, but he he ended his career in 85 and was a team owner uh, for Dale Jarrett and for uh, a few other drivers uh, that drove his cars. Derek Cope drove his car some. Mm-hmm. He didn't have the success as a team owner that he wanted to, though, I I know, because that's where he wanted to end up, as um, very much like Junior Johnson did. Junior won... 50 races, uh, retired in 1966, and then had a very, very good career. Six time cup series uh, championship team owner, but kale just was not able to follow in those footsteps and then, um, but he did have a couple of wins. though. uh, actually one was John Andretti at Daytona, the firecracker 400, uh, in his car and a win. I think, I don't think he had more than one, but. It just didn't work out for Kale to be a successful team owner, but an extremely successful driver. And he had a great career.
2: Exactly. Looking at, at what, <clears throat> what Kale has achieved, obviously, he's been inducted in so many halls of fame, including the NASCAR Hall of Fame. I would have to venture to guess that when you look at all the NASCAR greats, I would have to say that he, uh, Kale, was probably inducted to almost as many, if not as many halls of fame and museums and things like that as a Richard Petty and a, um, a David Pearson as well, too. Um, you know, the legacy that Cale Yarborough will leave us with when he eventually passes on to that great racetrack in the sky is something that's going to be there for a long, long time. He's, he's well-respected, or he was well-respected as a driver, still well-respected as an individual. Um, you know, the fact that he was so successful you know, he just, he seemed to have all the elements of a great race car driver. I mean, he was tough. He was competitive. He was fast, you know, and he didn't take anything from anybody else. But the thing is that he, he, like I said earlier in the show, I I've never felt that he's, he ever really got as much due as he should have done. But I mean, when you win 83 races, Um, And, you know, you're uh, always mentioning the same conversation as a Richard Petty or David Pearson. Uh, You can even throw Dale Earnhardt Jr. into that conversation as well, too. It says a lot about what this guy accomplished and achieved in his lifetime. There's no question that he was he was one of the best. There's no question about that.
1: Oh, no, no question at all. And I think he preferred to uh, maybe slip a little bit outside the spotlight a little bit and and do his talking on the racetrack. I mean, I think he. (laughs) You know, his personality, don't get me wrong. I think he was okay with the spotlight, but he didn't want to be at the center of the spotlight. That right. makes any sense. I mean, he, he loved to race. Uh, he was a hardworking competitor, a, a fabulous Christian man is, and I keep saying was, and I don't yeah. mean it that way. When I say was, I mean, right. I'm, I'm using the context of being a race driver. He's still very much with us and in good health that I know of, uh, he, he just, he wasn't the kind of guy as a racer that really sought the spotlight. I don't think he just wanted to just go race and be successful at it be a successful businessman, successful father and husband and, and a good example to people. And, you know, you never read anything crossways about kale in the paper or, uh, did something that would be embarrassing to his family or his sponsors or team owners, anything like that. He was just, a he, he did, like I say, he did all his talk on the racetrack and he never saw him in the middle of anything other than that 1979 Daytona 500 finish, and and you know you sort of somewhat understand that because they were battling each other for the victory in the biggest race, NASCAR race, and and on the biggest stage, and and Tippers got out of hand, and I think the thing, if you really analyze it for what it was, the thing was over in about 15 or 20 seconds. Right, right, right. But, but NASCAR, I've said for many years, NASCAR should have cut those three guys a check every week for <laughs> the past, you know, what, 40 years because it really helped NASCAR get on the map. And, and you know, NASCAR was up there in a, in a total panic up in the, in the director's box up there or whatever because they're like, oh my gosh, this is going to really give us a black stain. Well, it actually turned out that really got people talking all over the world about how great NASCAR was because these guys were just expressing their human emotions about the agony of defeat, if you will, as ABC Sports used to say. And they just lost their biggest race. And, you know, kale was part of that and, but he was a tough, tough competitor. Matter of fact, something else I wanted to mention 1973, the year he started with junior Johnson, if you can imagine this and it's true, kale led every single lap in a race at Bristol motor speedway from start to finish from lap one to lap 500, the way everything fell and the way the cautions fell. um, he led every single lap and that you gotta be really tough to manhandle those types of cars. And that's a side story to what I'm saying. Those cars didn't have power steering. They were yeah. those big Chevelles and dodges and, and Fords, you know, some people thought was as big as a motorhome. not like today's cars. They did not have power steering. They did not have the comforts that these cars have today. The, and he led every single lap of that race. And, you know, he had to be, have been worn out to, to be able to do that. And just, I, I can't say it enough. The guy was as tough as nails and, and here's something else too, Jerry. He, and this is, this is going to fascinate you to say this. He knew nothing, absolutely nothing about a race car. He didn't know how to set one up. He didn't know how to tell a crew chief what it was doing. Right. He, he didn't know any of this stuff other than, uh, you know, I mean, he could barely tell a guy what a crew chief, what it was doing, but if it was a 10th place car, he could win with it. That's what's so amazing about Kelly Arbor and believe this or not, he would leave notes in the seat, uh, of the cars. I mean, with pen and paper and say, this is what it's doing. It seems to be going a little bit high here and there. And when I turn the wheel, it does this or that. I can't explain what it does. This is true. (laughs) He had no concept of what to tell a crew chief, what to do. And, and he, he, they would somehow figure out what the note said, if they could read his handwriting and they would, <laughs> they would figure it out. He you know what I'm saying? I mean, Richard Petty and, and maybe, uh, uh, David Pearson could convey what the car was doing by the seat of their parents. Cale couldn't do that. I've talked to Jeff Hammond about it. I've talked to, to even junior about it and said he had no idea how to tell you what it was doing. But that made him a better driver because he could compensate a seventh or eighth or 10th place car and make it win. And that, that, that says a lot about him, but they, he didn't know how to tell you, he said, I don't know what to tell you it's doing, but it's, he would use hands, he would use his rear end. He would use things in his physical motion to tell a crew chief what it was doing and they could somehow figure it out. But if you don't figure it out, don't, but here's another thing too, Jerry. He would say, Jeff Hammond told me this, this weekend at Charlotte. He said he would they would put a gear in a car. They say, Well, this gear is a little softer than what your normal. He said, Well, if you don't want that thing back, don't put it in there because I'm gonna burn it up. <laughs> you know, it's like that's if you put the you put what if you don't want it back, then put it in there because I'm gonna it ain't gonna be getting good when I get done with it. And that's just tells you how how it is. I mean, with Kale, he was gonna I mean, he was just going to be hard on a car, but he was going to win with it. Exactly. And that just says so much about him. Any final uh, stories
2: about Kale? Because we still have the, uh, you know, the um, car number yep. and the first win. But any other stories that uh, come to mind that you want? No, to
1: know? no, not really. I think I've covered everything that I can think of for now. But there's there's a ton of them, and and if you ever have a chance to read anything about Kale or watch a a documentary or any any footage about him it's it's your time well spent because i'm telling you it it i can't say enough good about the man he very interesting story and very interesting to even watch an old race on say a youtube or something from Mm -hmm. start to finish that you i mean you might know that he's going to win it but it's just like you got to watch his incredible ability on a racetrack he he could take a car and like I said before a tenth place car and win with it it's worth watching it really is exactly all right we're going to go
2: coming out of turn 4 heading towards the checkered flag and as we do in every episode of a lifetime in nascar podcast we talk about the car number that equates or equals the episode number so this is episode number 66 and obviously we've talked a lot about Kale Yarborough who who uh, raced race in that number 66 for for a, a few times and but the the number the number 66 has not had a lot of success overall. And Ben, tell us about the first win, as well as, um, you know, I've got all the stats here. I don't know if you've got the the, uh, stats, but the 66 has had a number of starts, but um, success hasn't exactly been there. But tell us about the number 66. Well,
1: sure will, Jerry. Okay, the first start for number 66 actually came on February 5th, 1950, and it came in a 200-mile race at the beach, Daytona Beach and Road Course, uh, down in daytona which was the uh, we've said many times but it was a partial uh, a, a section of a1a and the actual beach itself where mm-hmm. they used to race before daytona international speedway was built and uh it was won by a gentleman or a first start i mean by uh, herschel buchanan and it, like i say uh, it was on uh, february 5th of 1950 and as far as the first win for the number actually had a little controversy here. The first and only victory, September 3rd, 1962 at Darlington Raceway, the Southern 500. Junior Johnson was flagged the winner that day, uh, but there was an immediate uh, problem with the scoring system. They used to use the old card system, like, not, not like we do today, where mm-hmm. people would sit in a scoring stand and write down each time the cards went by, they missed the lap uh they flagged junior johnson uh the larry frank was actually the winner of the race and he immediately protested it. he was sort of a backmarker driver very very nice gentleman met him before he passed away a few years back but he was certain that he won the race and he protested to nascar and they sort of argued the point for many hours after the race uh, junior johnson went home with the trophy and uh sadly uh, Larry did not get to go to victory lane, did not enjoy the victory lane ceremony. And then the next day, uh, Larry picked up the newspaper and found out that he was the winner, but the, all the joy had gone out of it. And that's kind of the way he looked at it too. And, uh, rightly so that they had messed up the scoring and he missed enjoying his only victory in, in NASCAR. And that was sadly the Southern 500. He, he did not enjoy the victory and. He knew he won it. He was certainly won it, and he did it in car number sixty six. It was a nineteen sixty two Ford Galaxy, mm-hmm. and uh, sadly, he was not able to win it. He he tried to, you know, and take it in fun if you could take that in fun over the years and try to accept the you know, the victory in stride. But you could tell he was very sad about it for years and years afterward. And sadly, we lost Larry a few years back. Right,
2: right. You know, the sixty six. <clears throat> excuse me, the number sixty six. 810 starts, just the one win that Ben mentioned, 11 top fives, 60 top tens, and five poles. But you know what I find interesting? And again, going back to our our good buddies over at RacingReference.info, listen, I'm just going to run through some of these names because, I mean, it really says a lot about what this car number meant, even though it was not a winning car number per se. I mean, let me go through some of the names here. Ralph Moody. It was I think one of his last races actually in 60 where I just had it here and just lost now. Oh yeah. 1962. He raced in Richmond in, in one race. You mentioned Larry Frank. He rose uh, drove that car quite a bit. Elmo Langley. And then we get into some other names that are going to really surprise you. And now I, I'm I, I'm hoping I'm right on this one. Jimmy Clark was that the IndyCar car driver because I know he
1: raced a couple races I believe right it, I, I believe it was, yes. Yeah, I think he did run number six. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, he raced in the 66. Then we have Donnie Allison raced 66. Dick Brooks. And we get some more. Lake Speed. Love that guy. He is just really, Lake Speed drove that car for quite a long time. And then Elmo Langley. Excuse me. Then we also have Phil Parsons drove that for a number of, a couple of years, actually, several years uh, for Phil Parsons. Rick Mast, Dick Trickle. I mean, is there a car number that Dick Trickle has not ever driven in? I mean, he, <laughs> you know, so he drove in the 66. Then we go back to Lake Speed. He came back into that car for a number of years. Then we have Randy LaJoy. You know, the, 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 what, what, I always forget his name, uh, the kind of name of his company, the, the joy of, of, uh, the joy, what was it the joy of, the joy of seating. of seating? That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then Chad Little, uh, who became, obviously became a NASCAR official, Jimmy Hensley for quite some time, Derek Hope, Mike Wallace, and then, here's a name that is going to probably surprise a few people now he did not win in this car but he's one of the greatest drivers nascar' has ever seen can you guess tell me who that was
1: oh gosh um
2: i'll give you a hint the late 90s in in well, the very late 90s, 90s, actually 1999
1: i'm not sure jaws daryl
2: Waltrip. okay sure 60s, i like went it. blank
1: on that one That's i on right. that, that all right. one
2: yeah, he drove that for, let's see, he drove that for uh, through the 2004 season, I'm sorry, 2000, and, uh, 2000 season, so he drove it for two years. Then I Todd totally Bod- forgot that. That's okay, that's okay. Todd Bodine uh, raced it for number, uh, quite some time, and then let's see who else we have. Hermie Sadler, uh, Kevin LePage, and Jeff Green, and let's see who else we, this is a long list here. Jeremy Mayfield for four races, Scott Riggs, what, yeah, whatever happened to Scott Riggs, that's a guy I've always wondered whatever happened to him. And then let's see here. We also have Terry Labonte in a one-off in 2009. That was in the Daytona 500. Uh, he finished 24th in that race. Dave Blaney for quite some time in that car. Michael McDowell, he raced a couple times in the 60 uh, in the 66. And then McDowell came back again in 2011, raced that car. I mean, I'm just going down this list here. I mean, just the names. Jeff Burton uh, raced a race in there. Joe Nemechek. Uh, Michael Waltrip for one race. Uh, just going down this list, it's just an amazing cast of characters and in, in Timmy Hills, another guy. And the last guy that started in the in the 66th, let me get to the bottom of this, was the Immortal. And he actually raced earlier this year in Austin, the Immortal Boris said. So a lot of big name drivers over the years and yet nobody was able to take it to Victory Lane. That's that's just a kind of a uh a very you know uh oddity that you know so many guys were in that car and yet only one person was able to take it to Victory Lane and that only happened once. Just an amazing thing.
1: Yep. And it proves, I guess, that the 43 is always the best number to take. <laughs> <laughs> the victory lane. So there you well, go. Well,
2: well, I think that Jimmy Johnson in the 48 and Jeff Gordon in the 24 might have something to say about that. But I agree with you, though. So, yeah, well, but,
1: 200, you can't argue with 200 victories. This is true. So,
2: this yeah. is very true. This is very true. Yeah. Well, Ben, as always, a, a great show, as as we always do. And, uh, you know, you gave me, you taught me things about Cale Yarborough I never even knew. And, you know, that's that's the that's why I enjoy doing this podcast with you so much, because. You are such a wealth of information and, you know, hopefully the listeners really enjoy this. I mean, I know our our numbers have been going up and we want to thank all the listeners for doing that because you've really helped put this podcast on the map. And, you know, just, we'll be back again next week, as we always are every single week. And I think that, um, you know, going forward, we're going to have some guests too. I know we've been promising that we're trying to work out a few details, but hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get some guests in here in the next uh, few weeks uh, on the podcast and we really, really like to really ramp that part of the podcast up to, to talk because, you know, Ben has a, a I mean, Ben has almost an a unlimited supply of stories, but we also like to hear the stories from the guys who actually lived through that too. You know, yes, that absolutely.
1: Time. For sure. Yeah. Yes. Exactly.
2: All right, Ben, any final thoughts, any closing comments at all?
1: Well, um, yes, just uh, we like you say, we just so enjoy doing this and we really appreciate everyone listening and we just want to bring more and more stories to you and just... You know, sit back and enjoy what we can bring to you, and we, we just love doing it. So we thank you very much for listening, and uh, we just want to keep doing it. And, uh, thanks, for, thanks for tuning in. Could have
2: said it better. All right, he's Ben White. I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Thank you for listening to A Lifetime of NASCAR Podcast, episode number 66. And, of course, next week we'll have episode number 67, so you definitely want to tune in for that. So, so for my buddy Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Have a good weekend, everyone, and we'll talk to you next time right here on A Lifetime of NASCAR Podcast. Yeah.